Section 6 of Weird Tales Presents The Strange World of Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Ask Houdini. Weird Tales, May, June, July, 1924. This department is open to all readers of Weird Tales who have some question to propound. Houdini will attempt to answer any logical question on subjects relating to physical or psychic phenomena. Readers are requested not to duplicate questions that have already been answered by Houdini in these columns. Questions pertaining to the future and personalities will receive no attention. They must have a general interest, otherwise they will not be considered. All correspondence will be handled by Houdini personally, and he is especially interested in hearing from those having unique experiences not easily explained. The Publishers Number 1. Cumberland, Maryland My dear Houdini, what is meant by a clairaudient? I have heard this word mentioned among spiritualists, and have never had an explanation I could understand. K.L. Answer. Clairaudient is French for clear hearing, and clairvoyant is French for clear seeing. A clairaudient in the parlance of the spiritualists is a medium who hears spirit voices, and a clairvoyant is one who sees spirit forms. The word clairvoyant, however, usually includes both meanings. Number 2. Madison, Wisconsin Dear Mr. Houdini, I am indeed interested to learn that you are taking up the subject of spiritualism and other matters of a bizarre nature and weird tales. It is not my intention to discuss the subject of spiritualism with you, but I wish you would answer frankly the question below. Believing that most people approach the hour of death with fear and apprehension regardless of the scientific proofs of the existence of psychic phenomena, don't you think that belief in the religion of spiritualism is to be encouraged if only that it helps to relieve this fear and that it would to assuage the grief of those who mourn for a departed one? C.A. Answer. No, I do not think the belief in spiritualism ought to be encouraged until it is definitely proven to be honest. Unless you wish to take the viewpoint that we ought to believe there is a Santa Claus, I would like to believe in a Santa Claus, I think, but you don't find fraud mediums who look upon their work as of a Santa Claus nature. I believe that one ought to face the inevitable with all the courage possible, knowing full well that we must face the great disintegration. Number 3. Shelbyville, Indiana Dear Houdini, I have before me a well-known spiritualistic publication which devotes a lot of space to your activities in the world of magic and especially to your remarkable escapes. In view of your present stance on the subject of spiritualism, I am curious to learn what you have to say concerning the following. The controversy raging around the performance of a lady entertainer who, posing as a medium, recently mystified an audience composed of people well-known in spiritualism and psychical research, reopens the question as to the possibility of conjurers doing some of their sensational tricks by means other than normal. My friend, Harry Houdini, the famous American escape artist, has more than once been credited with psychic powers, by means of which he is supposed to perform some of his miracles. Though Houdini would be the last person to pretend to powers he does not possess, he has confided to me the fact that there have been occasions when he has been helped in his performances by some unseen and unknown force, an intangible friend in need who has rescued him from many an awkward dilemma. Two of these incidents I will relate. I will add, en passant, that Houdini is not an adherent of the spiritual philosophy, but like the majority of people, is willing to be convinced. A favorite advertising stunt, that is the only word for it, of Houdini's is to allow himself to be locked up in the strongest cell of the local prison of the town in which he happens to be performing. In the presence of witnesses, he then escapes by manipulating the locks and freeing himself. Houdini was once playing a big town in one of the western states, and had undertaken to escape from the exceptionally strong cell of the local jail. He was stripped, placed in the cell in a nude condition, and the heavy door was then closed. The key of the modern and complicated lock was then turned upon him in the presence of witnesses. The door tested, the keyhole sealed, and the key handed to the governor of the jail, who was taking a lively interest in the proceedings. The signal was then given to the occupant of the cell that all was ready. Houdini immediately approached the door, placed one hand upon it, and to the accompaniment of a sharp click as the bolt shot back, the door slowly opened. In something under three seconds, Houdini was out of that cell. 
It would be difficult to say who was the more astonished, the governor or Houdini, who at first thought that some mistake had been made and that the door had been prematurely opened by a warder. But the seals were intact and all the witnesses vouched for the fact that no one was near the lock. The question as to what opened the door is still unanswered. The second incident is equally strange, though of a different character. Houdini, besides being able to break out of places, can break into them. A favorite feat of his is to open a safe or strong room secured by complicated locks. A large banking corporation with headquarters in New York had recently installed a new strong room, secured by the latest time locks in its chief office. At a board meeting soon after the completion of the room, a director jokingly remarked that they ought to test the security of the room by challenging Houdini to open it. Though the remark was made in jest, the directors decided to act upon the suggestion, and Houdini was invited to test his skill upon the new locks, whose kinematic elements were last word and ingenuity. Houdini accepted the challenge without knowing exactly the type of lock with which he had to deal. The mechanism of the lock in question was the application of watch or time movements, so as to regulate the period during which an obstructing bolt was to be kept in its locked position. In a suitable case, mounted on the inside of the strong room door, were four distinct chronometer movements. Each movement, instead of having ordinary clock hands, possessed a simple dial divided into 72 hours, or three days, and was arranged to make one revolution in that time. Each disc had a pin projecting from it, so placed as to move or slide a simple rod when the time had come for unlocking, the rod in its turn releasing the obstructing bolt. This then fell down by its own weight out of the way. In setting this lock, it was only necessary to wind up each movement for the predetermined number of hours and minutes that the strong room door was to remain shut. Any one of the movements was capable of alone putting the clock off guard, but four were provided in case of a possible breakdown on the part of one or two. There was no keyhole or the slightest aperture in the door, the large main bolts that kept it shut being worked by energy stored in the springs, and these were tripped up and allowed to come into action by the timer at the predetermined hour. The timing mechanism of the door was set to a different hour each day, two persons only being in the secret. These were the president of the bank and the chief cashier who consulted his principal as to the time of opening. It was arranged that Houdini should be at the bank at 2.30 p.m. on a given afternoon, and one hour was to be allotted him for his trial. A distinguished company of prominent New Yorkers was invited to meet the Wonder Worker. At the appointed time, the wizard appeared, and he at once started to inspect the strong room door, the exterior surface of which was merely a massive sheet of steel. Houdini at once realized he had a difficult proposition before him and began considering how he should tackle it. Suddenly, across the strong room floor, the figures 437 appeared to Houdini in luminous characters. That the figures were purely subjective, there can be no doubt, as no one except the magician saw them. After a while, the figures disappeared, but they were fixed indelibly in his mind, and he could think of nothing else. Everywhere he looked, he seemed to see the cryptic numbers, which impressed him so much that he became convinced that the figures were meant for his guidance. So he determined to make a test. He asked permission to take the remainder, 15 minutes had already elapsed, of his test hour between 4 and 5 o'clock the same afternoon. The small committee arranging the experiment agreed, and he then informed his audience that he would return at 4.36, at the same time synchronizing his watch with the bank clock. Houdini could not help noticing the puzzled looks exchanged between the president and the cashier, the only living persons who knew at what hour the room could be opened. Punctually at 4.36, Houdini arrived, walked straight up to the door of the strong room, placed his back against it, and said, Gentlemen, within one minute I will be on the other side of this door. It can be imagined with what breathless interest the spectators counted the ensuing seconds. Some pulled out their watches to assure themselves that Houdini would be literally as good as his word. Almost on the tick of the 60th second, there was a whirring noise from the interior of the room, and the bolts could be heard being automatically withdrawn. It was the work of a moment for Houdini to swing open the door and enter the strong room. To the intense amazement of the spectators, and to the no less astonishment of the president and his cashier, who are probably wondering to this day how Houdini discovered the exact time the lock would function. The secret was divulged some years ago to a select few. My readers have the choice of telepathy, coincidence, or some unconscious psychic power on the part of Houdini to explain the curious incident I've just recorded. Answer. As to my work consists of a willing acknowledgement of manipulation, and as I 
accomplish it by my knowledge of the construction of locks. I do not believe you would ask me to expose my secrets. However, any time that you meet me personally, I will explain how I opened the time lock, but I do not care to broadcast this information at the present time. Number 4. New York, New York Dear Mr. Houdini, perhaps you are familiar with the story of the play, Outward Bound, now running in this city. I saw the play and enjoyed it very much. I quote you on the comments of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on this play. In the main, it was a remarkably accurate presentation of one aspect of the life after death. On the narrow stage of the steamship were shown a number of people who were dead, but who did not know that they were dead. That sometimes happens. Another correct feature was the absence of change in personal appearance. There is one bad line in the play, and that is where Scrubby, the wonderful steward, on being asked if there is any wireless on board, replies, No, we have no wireless. He should have said, The receivers are all out of order. That would have been true. Those who had passed over could send to us, but too often we had not sufficient knowledge to receive or to understand their signals. Now I am thoroughly satisfied in my mind that Sir Arthur is sincere in his work. I do not distinctly remember the lines from the play quoted above, but I am of the opinion that Doyle is right. I have read all of his works on psychic phenomena and kindred subjects, and must say that he is almost invulnerable to attack except from the point of veracity as to his actual experiences, and I would not accuse him of misstating what he actually thinks he has seen or heard. Invariably, the name of Doyle comes up during a discussion of psychic phenomena of spiritualism. The antis generally say Doyle is wrong, but why don't they say Doyle is wrong as are Sir Oliver Lodge, Sir William Crooks, Lombroso, and others? Despite every conceivable effort to kill it, spiritualism lives and will continue to live. The religion of spiritualism is an ideal one. Its followers are legion, and this religion offers the one and only solution to the end of religious and race hatred. I do not deny that there are a great many charlatans and frauds practicing under its cloak, and this is deplored by the many honest and sincere followers. I'm curious to hear your views on sleep. Do you think that when you lie down and fall asleep, you cannot remember the moment you do, that you pass from one state of existence into another? Thanking you for any attention you may care to give this, I am cordially yours. C.D. Answer. You are mistaken when you suggest that the antis generally single out Doyle, for they do say that the rest of the scientists who support spiritualism are also mistaken. Look up the mistakes made by Sir William Crookes. Read the Quarterly of Science for 1874. Read Professor Zalmer's description of his seance with Dr. Henry Slade. There is no doubt that Slade misrepresented, and I hold his written confession, which has never been published, but which you will find in my new book, A Magician Among the Spirits. Read Professor Richet's book, just off the press, 30 Years of Investigations. He speaks of clairvoyance and ranks as genuine some mediums who I have personally investigated and whom I found cheating. They could never pass a legitimate test. I agree with you that the religion of spiritualism is an ideal one. I do not say that there is no such thing. I am perfectly willing to be converted. My mind is open, and I am not attacking spiritualism as a religion, but only attacking the fraud mediums and the miracle mongers. You ask for my views on sleep. Strange to say, we spend almost a third of our lives in this peaceful state. Some humans require more sleep than others. I rarely take more than six or seven hours out of the twenty-four. I use sleep as a necessity, others as a luxury, and still others as a life-waster. There are a number of books on the subject. I believe that sleep rests the energy of life, and that the tenant, yourself, who occupies your body, permits the landlord, nature, to make repairs in your abode while you sleep. If human beings would realize that they hold only a limited lease on their bodies, then they would not abuse them so unknowingly. Number 5. Columbia, Missouri Dear Mr. Houdini, do you believe that a person who suddenly lost a very dear friend would naturally be in a better position to communicate with the departed than one less acquainted, if there actually is such a thing as communication with the dead? H.J. Answer. Yes, I positively believe that any person who has lost a dear friend or relative would be in a much better position to communicate with the lost one. I think that is why the shock of suddenly losing beloved ones often causes persons to imagine things. Number 6. Erie, Pennsylvania. Dear sir, have you ever heard of John Slater, whose home was in California? I think he is the man who comes to Lilydale, New York every summer and lectures and gives readings. What do you think of his work? DWN. Answer. 
You ask my opinion of John Slater. What do you mean as a human being, as a clairvoyant, as a spiritualistic evangelist, or as an impossible lecturer before a high-grade audience? Number 7. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Dear Mr. Houdini, in the first installment of your story, The Spirit Fakers of Hermannstadt, you state that you were playing Vienna at the time. If I'm not mistaken, I had the pleasure of viewing one of your performances, though it might have been in Berlin. I was very much interested in the story, and knowing as I do the superstitions of those people, I can appreciate the predicament you were placed in. I await your further experiences with interest. V.L. Deb. Answer. Yes, I have appeared in Berlin a number of times. My first appearance there was at the Berlin Winter Garden about 25 years ago. I played there consecutively for almost 15 years, and was then brought back as a feature of the Hippodrome Circus by Director Bush. As a matter of record, I have played almost every principal city in the world except in South Africa and South America. Number 8. Montreal, PQ. Dear Sir, it seems a trait peculiar to magicians to make war against the religions of spiritualism. Despite the incessant warfare it has lived through, it stands today on firm foundation and has marked a steady growth. The writer is a native of Scotland and has had the pleasure of seeing you perform on several occasions abroad. I want to relate to you the facts of a so-called exposure of spiritualists in Glasgow in February 1878. Some of them are a trifle vague, and for this reason I refer to the book of James Robertson entitled Spiritualism, The Open Door of the Unseen Universe for Authenticity. This experience I have found to be general among so-called exposés. No man was ever more liberal in speech and condemned in tolerance with a louder voice than Professor Huxley, who certainly was one of the strongest forces of the age. Notwithstanding his clear-headedness, he became the dupe of a vulgar American showman, and for a time allowed prejudice to dominate his reasoning faculties. Though he had said that no event is too extraordinary to be impossible, yet he would never open his mind to the possibility of spiritual phenomena being true. It was beyond the extraordinary. He had refused to investigate the subject when the dialectical society called for his presence, saying, If it is true, it does not interest me. He had repeated the same sentiments to Alfred Russell Wallace, yet when he heard there was a person in America who was prepared to expose the whole matter, he opened his arms wide to receive him. The clever American played his cards well, so well as to dupe the most intellectual man in the country. The story he fabricated was greedily accepted. He said he had a dear friend who, while in a state of feeble health, had fallen into the hands of the spiritualists and had become insane. Roused by the wrongs done to this friend, his sole mission was to execute vengeance by exposing the arts by which the imposture was practiced on the soft-headed and credulous portion of the American and British public. He had succeeded in discovering the vulgar but skillfully veiled secrets, and now stern virtue called upon him to lay bare to the world the full explanation of the frauds. Robert Dale Owen had been a credulous fool. Professor Crooks, a weak-minded dupe. Professor De Morgan, a person without brains. And Alfred Russell Wallace and Cromwell Varley were blinded and incapable observers. The great American high-souled gentleman of independent fortune was mightier than all the scientific and literary men who had attested the truths of spiritual phenomena. He had grappled with the mystery, and for humanity's sake alone, had come out into the open with a clean soul to do the world a great service. No one thought of asking his credentials, so hateful was the word spiritualism that they swallowed his story without questioning about the dear friend who had been caught in its toils, and the independent means of high-souled and spirited exposure. The opponents of spiritualism were only too overjoyed to find a missile to hurl at it and supporters. Huxley was delighted and patronized the errant quack in London. Genuine phenomena could not interest him. The spurious claimed his attention at once. The crafty American, who could not impose on the spiritualists of America, found a fruit field on English soil. Huxley wrote to some of the professors of the Glasgow and Edinburgh universities, asking them to take this great champion of truth under their wing. How much the showman did to pull the strings himself is not known, but in February 1879, the Glasgow newspapers were flooded with long advertisements to the effect that Washington Irving Bishop, B.A., which I should read Bold Adventurer, had been invited by the prominent men of Glasgow to give a startling exposure of spiritualism, an exposition by human means of all the startling manifestations claimed by the spiritualists to be done by the spirits of the dead. The man of ordinary capacity could scarcely have read the flaming announcements without seeing that here was a showman, pure and simple, who knew his business, knew how to bring out telling headlines so as to draw the public. 
in case all who were interested might not have a chance of seeing for themselves how feeble minds could be imposed upon, two nights were to be devoted to this noble attempt to save the world from credulity and folly. The prices of admission were five shillings, three shillings, six pounds, two shillings, and a few one-shilling seats. But as money was far from the object in view, it was reiterated in every corner that the vindication of truth and saving of the weak-minded was the sole aim this gentleman of independent means had in coming to Glasgow. All the proceeds were to be devoted to the Western Infirmary. It will scarcely be credited that among the names of those who signed the requisite document which brought this adventurer into our midst were John Carr, the venerated principal of the university, and his scholarly brother Edward, now master of Balliol College, Oxford, Professor Barry, afterwards Sheriff of Lanarkshire, Professors Blackburn, Buchanan, Clallan, Cohen, Dixon, Veach, Grant, Jeb, Nicol, and Sir William Gardner, who had said clairvoyance came from a diseased condition of the faculty of wonder, whatever oracular meaning this might have. The most prominent advocate and supporter of the man-bishop, however, was Sir William Thompson, now Lord Kelvin. A few years later, he acted even more ridiculously than the opponent of Galileo, the professor of philosophy of Padua, of whom I have spoken. Mr. Stead had asked Lord Kelvin to interest himself in borderland subjects, but he replied, I have nothing to do with borderland. I believe that nearly everything in hypnotism and clairvoyance is imposture, and the rest bad observation. Mr. Stead very aptly says, this oracular dictum will probably live in the history of the progress of mankind side by side with the equally positive assertions of the Lord Kelvins of their day, in condemnation of Galvani and of Harvey whose discovery of the circulation of the blood exposed him to the ridicule of the leading scientists of his time. It was not the university professors alone who interested themselves in Irving Bishop's beneficent work of exploding what they considered, if they considered the matter at all, a hurtful fallacy. But all sections of the church, the defenders of ancient superstitions, were determined that no new claimant should ever enter the field. So we had Archbishop Ayer and the Father Monroe as representatives of that church which has ever sought to stifle everything new. The established church had its representative in Dr. Burns of the cathedral, while the free church had its liberal Marcus Dodds, Ross Taylor, and others. Episcopalians and United Presbyterians had also their share in the great honor of extending the invitation to the marvelous self-sacrificing and truth-devoted man of independent means who was to put an end to the existence of spiritualism. The night came when the so-called spirit manifestations, which had for so long eluded the detection and imposed upon the credulity of men, would be laid bare. Lord Kelvin, who never, I suppose, attended a genuine spirit circle in his life, was in the chair and helped the magician, just as boys carry out the instructions of the showman at juggling and mesmeric entertainments. He had crowds of his educated colleagues with him, who seemed to enjoy what was presented. Those in the audience who had seen good conjuring thought it a most tame exhibition of legermane but the prominent names on the committee carried it through. There was no exposition of clairvoyance, materialization, or rapping, only an exposition of the folly of learned professors. The spiritualist present laughed at the clumsy performance, and if it had been repeated for years, it could not have affected the beliefs of a single spiritualist. There had been many conjurers who, with the aid of machinery, had done some clever things which caused people to wonder. But Irving Bishop was a man who had not even well learned his business. I wonder what the newspapers would say the next day. And for once I was ashamed of the press. I recollect reading a leading article in the evening times of the period, and saying to myself, this leader will be quoted some day as an example of the ignorant and bigoted spirit which prevailed. I recently took the trouble to hunt it up in the Mitchell Library, and there it was as I had remembered it. In these days, when men like Sir Oliver Lodge, Professor Richet, F. W. H. Myers, and others have spoken out so clearly as to the objective reality of the phenomena, it looks as if it had been dug out of some ancient manuscript. Maniacs, illusions, and impostures are difficult to kill. It is doubtful whether the startling exposure which Washington Irving Bishop is giving of the thing called modern spiritualism, the silliest delusion, wickedest imposture of our time, will be its death blow in Glasgow. With few exceptions, the immense audience assembled did not require to be convinced of the supreme humbug of spiritualism. They want to see the barefaced lie exposed by a clever man, who has sounded all its miserable shallows, pretty much as they would go to see an infamous scoundrel exposed in a court of law. Mr. Bishop is an American of independent means who is dear friend, 
while in a state of feeble health, fell into the fangs of spiritualists and became insane under their precious trickeries. He has succeeded in discovering their vulgar but skillfully veiled secrets and is engaged in laying them bare to the world. Then we had a description of the tricks which had been the stock and trade of the regular conjurer for years. Lord Kelvin's appropriate remarks regarding the pernicious influence of the delusion are quoted as being masterful and conclusive. And the leader concludes with these words, A few presumably strong men have had their brains softened by seriously touching the imposture. I suppose Sir William Crooks, Wallace, and Varley were meant. Mr. Bishop's crusade may help to clear the noxious vapors from the eyes and minds of a few. There were two nights of the show, and at the conclusion, the Western Infirmary naturally waited for the proceeds with which the benevolent American was to dower them. But professors and infirmary had alike been sold. Mr. Bishop was needy, and had made sure his own people would draw the money, and that he would keep it once it was drawn. He coolly pocketed the entire proceeds several hundred pounds, less some twenty pounds or so, as their share of the spoil. All had been duped alike. It was a clever swindle. The professors and clergymen and the potent assertion of independent means and in avenging his dear friend's wrongs had the desired effect with the public, and the modern Cagliostro rushed away with the takings, leaving his silly dupes lamenting. It had been sufficient for Mr. Bishop to seem good and excellent, and although his credentials would not have stood any test, the eager desire on the part of the learned to believe anything unfavorable to spiritualism made them liable to fall into the net which he had prepared. The press had little to say about the robbery when it was found out. The matter was never fully opened to public gaze and was soon forgotten. Professor Huxley would be blamed, no doubt, for introducing such an errant knave to respectable Glasgow society. McGinn. Answer. You are wrong. Magicians do not war against the religion of spiritualism, but against fraud, mediums, and miracle mongers. I do not deny that there may be honest mediums. But in my investigations of more than a quarter of a century, I have never found any medium who stood the acid test of legitimate investigation by experienced men who have met all qualifications to be justly termed investigators. A scientist is not always qualified to be on the investigating committee. In fact, I believe that his trained mentality really disqualifies him until he has been initiated in the general manipulation of fraud medium's tricks. I can name a number of our brilliant men who have been deceived and cheated by the simplest tricks. Therefore, it does not surprise me that the scientific men you mentioned were fooled, or rather taken advantage of, by Bishop. I know the history of Bishop, the mind-reader. He met his death in a peculiar manner in New York City some thirty years ago. If I remember correctly, it was in the Green Room Club, and he had just given a demonstration of locating hidden articles when he fell into a cataleptic fit. Despite the fact that he carried in his pocket letters of instruction that his mother was to be notified in case of his sudden death, and that under no circumstances was any operation to be performed upon him without permission, the surgeons held an autopsy on his living body. Bishop's mother went to court when all this information became public, and you will find the entire proceedings in an article which I wrote for Conjurer's Magazine, wherein you will find reproduced the photograph of the casket, with the body of Bishop and his mother standing alongside. You can plainly see the incision showing the complete upper part of his skull separated from the lower part. His mother stooped over to kiss his forehead when the entire upper portion fell away. This must have deranged her mind, for she became somewhat eccentric. As she was in want, several of my friends supplied her with the necessities of life until she passed away in Rochester. The Countess Nicholas, Bishop's mother, had in some way befriended a man whose property was seized during the Civil War, and who claimed immense property in the South with accumulated interest that amounted to more than a hundred million dollars. Countess Nicholas claimed this was given to her by this friend, and at her death I was willed thirty million dollars. Unfortunately, up to the present day I have been unable to find how substantial or mythical this fortune is. Upon investigation, I have found that the fortune part of the story is true, but it has been outlawed by the years. Bishop was never looked upon as a genuine mind reader, but purely and simply as a muscle reader and imitator of J. Randall Brown, who is still alive. Stuart Cumberland was the best known of the muscle readers, and I knew him intimately. 
During Bishop's visit with the Tsar and Tsarina of Russia, Bishop found out their willingness to believe in spiritualism and he received valuable jewelry as a token of their esteem, and for his entertainments. He had a controversy with the editor of the London Truth, in which he came out second best, but he audaciously advertised that he had won. You mentioned Bishop, but you overlooked the splendid service rendered by the English magician Maskelyne, who exposed every charlatan in the past forty years and never once failed to show the deception. Mediums do not like magicians at their seances, claiming that they are a disturbing element. But what could ten thousand magicians do in front of a radio machine? Nothing, except express their amazement at one of the greatest inventions of our time. Number 9. San Francisco, California Dear Houdini, you say you want to expose fraught mediums, but are there not also legitimate mediums who can stand every test imposed on them? Answer. Perhaps there are such, but I have never met any. To show you how difficult it is to find a genuine medium, let us go back to 1857, when the Boston Courier offered $500 for a medium who could successfully meet the test. Such offers have been repeatedly made since, and a similar offer was backed up by the $60,000 willed to the University of Pennsylvania by Henry Seibert. In rough figures, during the past 60 years, there has been offered almost $100,000 for a medium who could meet a genuine test. Yet no one has ever been granted any bonus for meeting such a test. Number 10. Brooklyn, New York Dear Sir, Perhaps the question that I have in mind does not come under the category named in weird tales as psychic. But knowing of the extensive library that you possess pertaining to magic and kindred subjects, I am confident that I may obtain from you what I am unable to find elsewhere. In Eliphas Levi's work on transcendental magic and other books of similar character, I meet with frequent references to the ritual of the Black Mass. Nowhere can I find a detailed description of that ritual. And as I am attempting to compile a history of human superstition, I am desirous of obtaining the entire ritual, rather than attempting to piece together such fragments as I have been able to glean from the New York Public Library. I enclose postage for return answer, if I may hope for a personal reply. Otherwise, allow me to thank you very cordially for the answer through the medium of Weird Tales. May I, as a constant reader of your magazine, offer my appreciation as such for your contribution to that periodical. RGR Answer Rarely will you find reference to the Black Mass. My opinion is that it is a sort of convention of devils, and there the witches, wizards, and sorcerers confess. This is supposed to take place on the Devil's Sabbath. I have never seen a complete description of their rituals. Spence in his occult encyclopedia gives very little information on this subject. I remember reading a description of the Black Mass and the rituals. Some of it, if my memory serves me right, was photographed in Sweden and was of such a nature that the picture, which cost a fortune, has never been seen by the public. It was called, I believe, Superstition of the Ages. I saw this film run, but up to the present time it has never been seen outside of a private projection room. It took more than two years to make it. According to Funk and Wagnall's Black Mass, it is a burlesque on the Christian Mass. Number 11, Daytona Beach, Florida. Dear Mr. Houdini, I would appreciate it very much if you could tell me if Swami Bhakta Vishita, Hindu master and author of the development of seership, Hindu, and other oriental methods, and I believe other books, has or has not been found to be a fraud. If he has not been found to be a fraud, I would thank you very much to let me know the titles of his other books, and in what order they follow each other, and whether they can be had. I accidentally got hold of his book on seership and became greatly interested. In fact, I am making a study of his methods, and if he is not a fraud, I would like to get more of his works. But if he is known to be a fraud, I will waste no more time on him, hence my questions. Now another question. A lady came here this winter from Lilydale, New York, and has been conducting a spiritualist church in the Moose Hall in Daytona, Florida, all the season. I have attended it, and she professes to be a medium or mediumistic. I would like to ask if she is a fraud. Any works that you could recommend to me on the occult or psychic order would be appreciated very much. I mean, reliable ones, of course. NSJ. 
Answer. Hindu psychics in all branches are the most to be guarded against. I do not know what good it will do you to read their books, unless you are able to read upon them and eventually refute their teachings. If any one of them possessed one-third of the power the Hindu psychics all claim to possess, he could come forward and claim the huge rewards awaiting true psychics. This applies to all who did not come forward for the public test. Incidentally, you mention Lilydale. That is the breeding place for psychic fanatics who are consciously and subconsciously frauds. Number 12. Lewistown, Montana Dear Sirs, I'm writing you one of my actual experiences. One day, when I was in the age between 17 and 18, I was riding a horse on my uncle's ranch and I had an experience I shall never forget. It was late in the evening. I was riding around a bunch of pine trees when my horse shied and just about threw me. I looked into the pine trees and saw a figure which resembled a human hanging on a limb of a big tree. Its hands were tied behind its back and a rope was around its neck. The air seemed funny all around those pines. It seemed moldy. I spurred my horse closer and got off. I walked nearer and the thing vanished as if it went into thin air. Chills began to run up and down my spine. I lost no time in getting to my horse and galloping for home. When I got home, I told my uncle about it. He would not believe me. So several days later, he was riding by there about dusk and he saw it also. When he got home, he was all excited about it and asked the hired men if they had seen it, but all of them said they had not. One day, our neighbor rode over to the ranch and said there was a dead man hanging over in a group of pines. All the men at our ranch went over there, but it was gone when they got there. One day, when I was riding around, I went over to the cabin of an old trapper who went by the name of Big Dick. His right name was Robert Holt. I told him about it, and he said that he would wait till dusk and then go over there. When dusk came, we went over, and it was there. He walked up to it and was going to touch it with a stick when a dog jumped out from a clump of bushes and made a snap at Dick's hand. Dick jumped back and screamed. Out of the dog's mouth came a tongue of fire that burned for a moment and went out, but the dog continued to show its teeth and snarl. Its eyes glowed like fire. But the body of the man vanished. Then the dog seemed to leap into the air and vanish. I had stood there all the while, watching, with my mouth wide open and chills running up and down my spine. After a while, I came out of it and began to talk to Dick. Then he asked, "'What do you think of that?' I said I did not know what to think. He caught his horse and said he had seen enough of that thing for a while. I learned afterwards that a horse thief had been caught and hanged there about thirty years before, and that he had a dog with him, and that a cattleman had said, we might as well kill his dog, too, so we will be rid of all of his relations forever. They left him and his dog both dead by the tree. Neither he nor his dog was ever buried. J.P. Answer. Your narrative seems like the creation of the fertile mind of fiction. It savors strongly of The Hound of Baskerville by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I should say that time, place, and general environment were favorable to vivid imaginations that no better field for action could have been selected than a pine grove on a dark night. It is not difficult to conjecture that witnesses such as you cite are of the type most susceptible to superstitious influences. I have slept in cemeteries, I should say at least two dozen times, and my imagination caused me to think that the place was peopled and every moment I expected to have a host of the shadows come up and mock me. My father, who also investigated phenomena, and who was one of the pioneers in 1848, related a story that in his student days one of the boys in his class had to drive a nail and a wooden cross at midnight in the local cemetery. And as he turned to flee, a hand reached out and held him fast. He shrieked and shouted for help, screaming out that he was held by a ghostly hand, but by the time assistance arrived he was dead on the grave. It appeared that in driving the nail in, he had accidentally, in his excitement, nailed down the coat. His mind had conjectured a hand reaching out from the grave and securing him. There is no doubt that your mind conjured up the things you write in your letter. My father also told of a hazing at which a man was going through a certain ordeal and he was supposed to have his head cut off. So his hazers struck him with a towel soaked in ice water and he was worked up to such a pitch that he died of the shock. About six months ago, a man was arrested in Berlin for a thought murder. Every morning he had called up his rival, a butcher, who had consumption, and asked him if he were not dead yet. This preyed so on the butcher's mind that it actually hastened his death. The man who had harassed him was put on trial, as witnesses claimed that the sick man was really killed by the very thought of expecting this call every morning. 
number 13, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dear Sir, Propaganda, what misery is created in thy name? Having read your department of weird tales, I want to say that I consider it propaganda. Because why not attack Catholicism or the Jewish religion? Or some of the other isms also, whilst you are out on this campaign. But no, it must be spiritualism. I wonder if you realize what glorious wisdom and philosophy may be attained through this same spiritualism. You are looking at the psychical and psychic phenomena side of the angle, but I am looking from a spiritual standpoint. Mr. Houdini, I'm sure you're committing a grievous error, because I know there are genuine mediums as well as quacks. Not all resort to trickery, I would have you know. There are frauds in all things at every turn in life, but whatever ye are seeking, that shall ye also find. I know of many people with the same turn of mind as yourself, and knowing the value of thought forces, a knowledge taken from Oriental occultism, I know they can produce whilst sitting in a seance, disastrous results to all concerned. If they would study chemistry, astronomy, physiology, and psychometry, as well as the human brain, they would not be up to such schoolboy pranks. I can explain that the raising of the trumpet in various articles during a seance is accomplished by a force, electrical, magnetic, thrown out from the medium or the bodies of the sitters, and this produces levitation in the voices supposed to come from the medium or confederates, as you so wish to term them, are actually from the realms of thought. The entities may control any part of the medium's body by working through or manipulating the leading nerve center, leading to the part they wish to control. Hence, they control the vocal organism and produce voices. I could explain every phrase of mediumship, Mr. Houdini, but it would take up too much of your time, and you perhaps would not care to hear it anyway. I know there are positively genuine mediums, gifted with the same spiritual gifts as the prophets of old, for it is only natural law, and God, dwelling within nature, makes his laws unchangeable. I had a good laugh over some of your explanations, for you explain things about spiritualism as we would explain the wondrous, mystifying tricks you perform. There is something deep and intangible to it all if we would only look at things with an unbiased vision. I suggest that the best thing for you to do would be to not dabble in something that pertains to the deeper sciences. If you're so afraid of becoming a victim of hallucinations or a candidate for the insane asylum. J.B. Answer. Madam, there is $75,000 awaiting the person or medium who can substantiate your claims to the existence of so-called psychic or odic force, or that entities do or can control anything of a phenomenal nature. With all due respect, I would say that my deepest sympathy is extended to you, and if you will pardon me, I would advise confining your thoughts to the things of this mundane sphere. Catholicism, the Jewish religion, and all orthodox religions are established on such facts of spiritual advantage to the human race that there is no comparison between them and a cult. Spiritualism was acknowledged to be a fraud by the Fox sisters, inventors of the myth. Must I keep repeating personally that I am not attacking any religion, I am simply giving the facts of my thirty years of experience as an investigator, and showing that up to the present time it has never come to my lot to meet a genuine medium. And you must concede that in thirty years I ought to run across someone who possesses these powers. Number 14, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My dear Mr. Houdini, I have read your little leaflet given at your performance on February 21st at Carnegie Hall, Pittsburgh, and will give you my impression. I had read press notices and other advertising about the performance, had not seen you before, and was particularly induced to go by the announcement that spiritualistic deceit, treachery, and falsehood would be exposed. I must say I was greatly disappointed. While you did ridicule spiritualism to some extent, yet your talk lacked all convincing argument. Also, any comprehensive exposure of methods employed by the mediums, etc. Your talk impressed me as being irrelevant, and you appeared reluctant in dealing with the subject at hand. There may be some cause for this, and I can readily understand your position from a business standpoint. For the enlightened, your appearance may be somewhat encouraging. But for the ignorant, spiritualistic believer, you do not demolish any fences. All in all, I went away dissatisfied. This is written in a kindly spirit, and probably I expected a too aggressive lecturer. E.H. Answer. I do not understand why you should be disappointed, because during my lecture I permitted the audience to bombard me with questions. And if there was anything you would like to have known, why didn't you hurl it at me? I want to thank you for the spirit in which your letter was written. There is no such thing as a comprehensive exposure of fraud. 
All exposures are admitted by the faithful as being tricks, whereas they insist that the identical effect as produced by medium is genuine phenomena. If there is any particular phase that you would like to have explained, I think I can give you the explanation. Number 15. Erie, Pennsylvania. Dear Mr. Houdini, the writer wishes to congratulate you on the wonderful delivery of your lecture in our town on February 22nd. I should like to hear from you whether you can conceive such a thing as creation. The writer considers you one of the masterminds of the world, and I am therefore appealing to your intellectual knowledge and soliciting your ideas in the pure naked form. As I am not considered one of the tender skins, kindly reply openly. I have an exceptionally intelligent friend by the name of Jacob Lomask, at 1521 State Street, Erie, Pennsylvania. He is the gentleman that was upon the stage and addressed the audience at your permission. He is an ordained minister of the Spiritualist Church, and I consider him a modernist and a libertarian. With his efforts, I have come to the conclusion that he is fully correct, but of course a modern thinker may change his mind at any moment. At one time, the writer was a rank materialist, believing that we arrive at the cradle and end completely at the grave. But my friend, Mr. Lomask, has converted me into believing that conscious life is continuous beyond the grave. I'm still seeking the supreme ruling powers. Can you enlighten me? I wish to state that you have won a spot in my heart, and I feel as if I know you personally. H.H.C. Answer. It was an interesting lecture that I had in Erie, and I was much pleased at the way Mr. Jacob Lomask handled the audience regarding his views. There is but one supreme creator. I believe he has no proxies to perform spiritualistic phenomena. Our destiny is in his hands, and we must be submissive to his mandates. There is a vast difference between a spiritual existence and a spiritualistic existence. There has never been any proof shown of a spirit having returned to this mundane sphere that would stand the acid test of scrutiny of investigator or investigation. There are hundreds of books written that spirits had returned but that is merely conscious or unconscious belief. The Revue de France published an article which it would pay you to read. Number 16, Pasadena, California. My dear sir, I have read with great interest your first installment in Weird Tales of your exciting experiences with the spirit figures of Hermannstadt, and wish to say that your name and work have enlisted my vivid interest for some years. Gleaning also from weird tales that you are an authority on psychic phenomena and spiritualistic conjectures concerning same, I herewith take advantage of the opportunity offered by weird tales to elicit from you, through its columns or otherwise, an expert opinion as to what could have been the underlying causes of the peculiar psychic experiences which came spontaneously to me, utterly uncalled for. I am by nature a born skeptic like yourself, and for the major portion of my life, quite an atheist materialist yet. Curiously enough, with a strong leaning toward occultism and a most intense desire for truth in every department of human activity, but particularly as to the claims of our religion and spiritualism, in which by ardent study I have discovered a great affinity as to the claims in each of its psychic phenomena, formerly termed miracles. I have also, like yourself, acquired quite an extensive psychic and spiritualistic library, embracing the fine work of some of the greatest scientists, such as Sir Alfred Russell Wallace, Cesar Lombroso, Sir William Crookes, Dr. Baron von Schrenknotzing, Materialization's Phenomene, which I read in the original German edition and parts of which I translated into English from my good friend Dr. Lucian Larkin, astronomer at Mount Lowe Observatory here who was interested to know if the chemical constituents of the ectoplasm or teleplasm which issues from the bodies of some mediums, such as Marie Barand, Ms. Scholliger, Ava C. Francis Klusky, etc., and which was observed and photographed by Dr. Gelly of Paris, Dr. Crawford of Belfast, Ireland, Dr. Schrenknotzing of Munich, etc., etc., this substance, as you undoubtedly know, being the plasm utilized by the invisible spirit or intelligence to build therefrom a temporary body such as was worn on earth and for the purpose of identification. Having such books as Dr. William G. Crawford's The Reality of Psychic Phenomena and The Psychic Structures of the Gallagher Circle, von Schrenknotzing's big volume with 152 large plate photo flashlight reproductions of his materializations, phenomene, and many other similar works, you undoubtedly are familiar with the 
modus operandi of a strict scientific nature to register the progress of the extraordinary phenomena. I've just finished reading Camille Flammarion's three books, the trilogy on death, number three on after death especially enlisting my attention. As Mr. Flammarion details hundreds of such extraordinary events, evidently well authenticated, claiming to have in his possession something like 7,000 or 9,000 personal letters from all over the world and covering a wide range of phenomena. I'm curious to learn from you how all such phenomena could be duplicated by trick simulation or by the processes of Ledgerdmain. I've been following with great interest the Scientific American's test procedures under J. Malcolm Burns' chairmanship and under your and others' collaboration to land into the net of proof in fact under severe test conditions the various claims of professional mediumship. And if I can judge at least approximately correctly, it seems to me they have already encountered some genuine phenomena. But kindly permit me to ask a specifically important question. If all phenomena of that sort were or could eventually be proven to be an individual or collective hallucination or subconscious mind action, both collective and individual, or based upon other purely earthborn terrestrial and material conditions, how could so many so-called miracles have been attributed to Jesus the Christ and other biblical supernormal phenomena? Personally, I regard all such genuine phenomena as spiritistic or spiritualistic in origin, and am quite well posted on the Talmudic expurgations history of Jesus and other non-biblical information of an historical character concerning the psychic medium, as I call him. I think the Bible will eventually stand or fall altogether as an individual receptacle for faith and hope in an individual self-conscious future life after death. By just how much or how far science can or will eventually be able to prove whether any phenomena whatsoever is or can be due to discarnate intelligence or spirits. But I am overstepping the rights of communication, and will merely say in conclusion that I wish you would consider the mental telepathy experiment in my clipping, the Laura to those coming to be revealed, Claire audience sentence and its sequel, the prayer for rain incident, and the terrifying three enormous blows on the bedroom closet door after reading and commenting aloud on the revelations of St. John, as these were among the most startling of my California experiences. However, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my birth and hometown, I had quite a number of other experiences equally, if not more startling, including apparitions of my dead father, two of them. And just at a time when I was most unbelieving, atheistic, and leaning altogether to materialistic opinions of being, how my own mind, whether consciously or subconsciously, could produce any of these results, especially when rebellious against all credulity in such matters, I am utterly unable to say or determine. But what I can affirm positively and as fact only is that these things occurred exactly as detailed without an atom of embellishment or exaggeration. I shall await your response with eager interest, and am looking forward expectantly to your next installment of the Spirit Fakers of Hermannstadt, Experiences and Weird Tales. Hello. Answer. I've had a similar experience of rain miracle by command, etc. In my case, it was a mere coincidence, and doubtless it was the same in your case. All the scientists you name have been deceived by noted mediums, and there's full proof recorded of such being a fact. The whole subject of occultism is frail. End of section 6.